Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Such a special honor to introduce our speaker today. It is not every day that you get to meet someone who has coined a phrase that becomes a part of the national vocabulary and foreign policy. But that's what Harvard professor Joseph Nye did when he wrote about the concept of soft power, how leaders can influence other political bodies through cultural or ideological means. Here's how he put it in the opening chapter of his widely influential book, Soft Power. He wrote, more than four centuries ago, Niccolo Machiavelli advised princes in Italy that it was more important to be feared than to be loved. But in today's world, it is best to be both. Winning hearts and minds has always been important, but it is even more so in the global information age. And amen to that. And I'm sure that Edward R. Murrow, the godfather of public diplomacy in the U.S., would agree. As Murrow put it, public diplomacy should be in on the takeoffs as well as the crash landings. I was fortunate to work for Under Secretary Hughes, as Jim mentioned. She made a brave and energetic start at rebuilding public diplomacy in the U.S. after years of decline. And I noticed that she kept a copy of Joseph Nye's book on soft power in her bookcase, and it was heavily underlined in yellow highlighter. That's because when Joseph Nye writes and speaks, leaders read and listen. He has argued that we need to at least double our efforts at public diplomacy, and now the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, and others have started making the same argument. Professor Nye, who was previously dean of the influential Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, has written in his work about leadership that, quote, the dictionary says leadership means going ahead or showing the way. He certainly has shown the way. He recently was ranked sixth by his peers for having the most influence on the field of international relations. He is a former assistant secretary of defense, chair of the National Intelligence Council, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Rhodes Scholar, and is keeping up with the information age by becoming a keen blogger as well as a distinguished professor and author. Won't you join me in welcoming Professor Joseph Nye, who's going to talk to us about the power to lead. Professor Nye. Thank you, Rena, and it's nice to be back in Dallas. <clears throat> I must say that uh, whenever anybody refers to me, though, as Dr. Nye, uh, I'm always reminded that having had three somewhat iconoclastic sons, they would answer the phone when somebody asked, is Dr. Nye there? They'd say, yes, but he's not the useful kind. <laughs> Uh, what I'd like to do <clears throat> this noon is to talk to you a little bit about an extension of the concept of soft power that Rena mentioned, 
which is in my latest book. The, when I thought about soft power originally, I was thinking of it in terms of international politics and the standing of the United States. And I'll come back to that at the end of my talk. But <clears throat> the new book that I wrote um, tries to argue that soft power matters at all levels. It matters to leadership of a country, of an organization, of a group of individuals. And that's what I mean by the powers to lead. If indeed, if the book had a subtitle, it would be the powers to lead hard, soft, and smart. And smart is the ability to combine them in the right context. In fact, the message that I want to leave with you, the message of this book, is context is all important. There is indeed a whole chapter in the book on what I call contextual intelligence, and I'll talk to you about that a little bit later. But if you don't specify context, you can often get things wrong, whether you're thinking about leadership or whether you're thinking about power. Let me give you an example. Winston Churchill. Most people would say Winston Churchill was one of the great leaders of the 20th century. But imagine it was January of 1940. What would we think of Winston Churchill? What would people think of Winston Churchill? He was widely regarded as a failure, a washed-up backbench member of parliament. Now, if you take in the same sample in June of 1940, just six months later, he was the charismatic leader, the savior of Britain, the crucial leader. What happened? Did Churchill change? No, not one of his traits changed. What happened is the context changed. Hitler invaded France, drove British forces into the sea at Dunkirk, and instead of being the cowboy who was too wild to be prime minister in January, he was the man of the moment who saved Britain with his rhetoric and inspiration by June. That's an illustration of the importance of context. Let me give you also a footnote to that, which is by 1945, the British voted him out of office because by then the war was won and they wanted to create a welfare state, not to pursue the glories of the past. So the message that I want to leave you is as you think about leadership, you've got to think of it as a triangle, the leader, the followers, and the context. And all too often, we fail to put in context. Now, the same thing is true of power. When we talk about power, we often fail to specify context. So very often people say, you know, if country A has 10,000 main battle tanks and country B has 1,000 main battle tanks, A is 10 times stronger than B. But that might work if the battle is in a desert, but if the battle is in a swamp, it might be totally irrelevant. So that context is absolutely crucial, as the Americans found out in Vietnam. As we think about power, it's basically the idea or the ability to influence others to get things we want. And there are three ways you can do that. You can do it with threats, sticks. You can do it with payments, carrots. Or you can do it with attraction, to get others to want what you want. And that's what I mean by soft power. And the more you can supplement your hard power with soft power, the less you have to spend on carrots and sticks. Now, one problem we have as a people is that we don't talk very well about 
the soft dimensions of power. It's almost taboo. A friend of mine who's a congresswoman said, you know, Joe, your concept of soft power is very good analytically, but politically it's a loser. No politician can get up on the stump and talk about softness. And Bob Gates's speech in Wichita in November was interesting because it's the first time a Secretary of Defense has brought that out. Now, if you talk to American military, they get this. That's what Petraeus is all about, is how do you win hearts and minds? How do you combine soft with hard power? But civilians have a much tougher time of understanding this dimension of leadership because talking about soft doesn't go over well. I would argue that until we as a people are able to think about both hard and soft power and how to mix them together in smart power, we're not going to do very well. And that's the central message of my book. As we think about leadership, there's a great tendency uh, to use an old-fashioned form of thinking about leadership, to think of what I call the big man theory of the leader. The leader is the king of the mountain, uh, this big person at the top who says things, commands things, and people follow. But the trouble with that, uh, well, I, I should say, let me just interrupt this thought with, a, with an anecdote, which is, if you tried to support that argument, you could find evidence that most CEOs are taller than other men. In fact, there's been a study done of this that shows that for an American male, one inch of height is worth $800 a year in salary. So you might say, well, that supports the big man theory of leadership. But careful about causation. You know, the presence of the presence of fire engines at a fire doesn't mean fire engines cause fires. And it may be that our image of what a leader should look like creates these taller CEOs rather than that the taller CEOs are, by nature, better leaders. Uh, in fact, if you think about that for a minute, let me submit three names to you of people, of leaders who had a profound effect on history. Napoleon, Joseph Stalin, and Deng Xiaoping all of them a little over five feet tall. So the idea that sort of the big man theory physically is the right way to think about leadership isn't true, though it remains somewhat in our, in our thinking. Or there's another approach which says, well, maybe it's the alpha male. For example, there's a psychiatrist named uh, Arnold Ludwig who's written a book called King of the Mountain about leadership in which he says, we humans, are 98.8% the same in our genome as chimpanzees. And when you go and you study groups of chimpanzees, you will find every chimpanzee group has an alpha male. And males will compete to be the alpha male, and alpha males can be overthrown, but there's always an alpha male leader. And this gives a sociobiological argument for why we should indeed think of uh, leadership in what I call this great man approach. The trouble with that is several. One is that when people look to isolate a leadership gene, you can't find it. And when you do things like compare identical twins who have 100% genetic similarity with fraternal twins who have 50%, you find interesting things in terms of accounting for which ones become leaders. What you can find is that genetics can account for about one-third of leadership success, and two-thirds essentially is nurture, not nature. Or if you want another 
reason or example to avoid being caught in this view, I would argue an obsolete view, of the great man theory of leadership based on hard power command from the top, um, it's the bonobo. Now the bonobo is a chimpanzee that lives in the eastern Congo. And one of the most interesting things about bonobos, who are about as related to us as other chimpanzees, is they have no alpha male leaders. They're led by females. Now, half of you in this room might be shaking your heads this way and others <laughs> shaking your heads this way. But it is very interesting that if you try to use sociobiology uh, to explain leadership, it doesn't get you very far. And what's more, there's a new argument which says that in an information age that we are entering now, that hierarchies are becoming flatter and that networks are becoming more important. If you're in a hierarchy, you can give orders from the top with hard command power. If you're in a network, it's like being in the middle of a circle rather than king of the mountain, and you have to attract resources to you. In the information age, as networks become more important, therefore soft power, attractive power, becomes more important. And that is a is true in many organizations, and you might say, yeah, but it doesn't affect, let's say, a big corporation. Let me submit to you the testimony of Sam Palmasano, the head of IBM, who's recently written that the worst thing that a leader or a CEO can do is believe in the command and control view of running a large multinational. Said so you've got to get people in, in all these different countries, tens of thousands of them, to buy into your vision because you can't rule them by command only. So attractive or soft power in networks is as equally important as hard power of command. Indeed, people are beginning to say that we should take the old big man theory of leadership and stand it on its head. And some say what we need is the big woman theory of leadership. In stereotypical terms, it's often said that women have a better intuitive sense of soft power. A better, they're more nurturing, more participatory, there's more of a sense of drawing people to you. Men tend to a more macho, top-down command approach. Again, these are stereotypes. But there's enough scientific evidence now from various management leadership studies that soft power is becoming more important, that some are saying what we need is the big woman, not the big man. I think this is a mistake as well. Because anytime you characterize types of leadership by stereotypes, your thinking stops. And what I argue in the book is rather than think in stereotypes, we should talk about what are the soft power skills that a leader needs, whether male or female? What are the hard power skills a leader needs, whether male or female? And how do they combine them under different contexts into a smart power strategy? Or putting that a little differently, there are many times when men are going to have to think more like women and women are going to have to think more like men. So what are these skills? Uh, there are basically three crucial soft power skills that I'll outline for you. And there are two crucial hard power skills. And then there <clears throat> is the sixth skill, which I think is all important, is contextual intelligence, the ability to put them together in a smart strategy. I think the most important soft power skill is something that's called emotional intelligence, 
which is the mastery of one's own emotions and the ability to use them to reach out and attract others. One way to illustrate this is to think of the case of Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, when Justice Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, was introduced to Roosevelt in the 30s, he was asked, what did you think of the president? And Holmes said, second-class intellect, first-class temperament, which is another way of saying great emotional intelligence, and that's more important. Contrast Roosevelt with Richard Nixon, who probably would have beaten Roosevelt on an IQ test but who had inner demons that he never quite mastered and whose relations with others was often dominated by an enemies list. Uh, that's an example of why emotional intelligence is so important for as a soft power skill. A second soft power skill is the ability to create a vision. And a vision is a picture of a future that gives meaning and inspires others to want to follow you, attracts them. But it's not enough just to propound a vision. You have to have a vision which combines realism and risk. Otherwise, if the vision is just about inspiration, but no sense of reality, it becomes grandiose rather than grand. And again, I think a good test of our example of this would be the two Bush presidencies. Uh, Bush 41 was famous for saying, I don't do the vision thing. And that probably hurt him when it came time to be reelected re in 1992. But he had one of the best foreign policies we've seen in the last half century. Uh, Bush 43, of course, was very big on vision, had a vision of invading Iraq, replacing Saddam Hussein, spreading democracy through the Middle East as getting a way to, to weed out the roots of terrorism. But it was a vision beyond our capacities. So it's interesting that the president with no vision, actually, in his own words, I think had a better foreign policy than the president who proclaimed a rather grandiose vision. A third soft power skill that's important is communications. Now, we sometimes think of communications as rhetoric. And certainly, rhetoric is important, the ability to speak well. Anybody who listens to a tape or watches a film of Martin Luther King uh, and realizes his extraordinary capacity to use the cadences and vocabulary of the African-American church to go beyond that community and unite a nation, realizes how important rhetorical skills can be. Or Winston Churchill, who I mentioned earlier, often said that his leadership was a tribute to his mastery of the English sentence. But again, just as there are slight qualifications about vision, that it has to have reality as well as inspiration, there's some qualifications about communication. You have to be able to match your verbal and nonverbal communication. Some psychologists would argue that we actually communicate more nonverbally than verbally. And an example of this would be Mahatma Gandhi, another of the great leaders of the 20th century. Gandhi, as a speaker, was not very good. If you ever listen to a tape or see a film of Gandhi, he's rather uninspiring speaker, but he was a master of nonverbal communication. You compare a picture of Gandhi, the British trained lawyer with his button-up tie and suit and so forth when he was uh, in his younger years, and Gandhi, the leader of a nationalist movement, 
um, you know, wrapped in these white claws of the peasants, you'll see how important nonverbal communication was. Or when Gandhi led his salt march to the sea in 1930, very slow, very deliberate, gradually drawing attention, letting things build up, terrific use of nonverbal communication. So those three skills, um, emotional intelligence, vision, and communication, are crucial soft power skills to attract people. But you also need to have two hard power skills. One I call organizational skills. And that's the ability to manage information flows and reward systems. Sometimes there's a temptation to say that there are leaders and there are managers, and that they're two different things. I think, on the contrary, that a good leader has to understand something about management. If you're not good, it doesn't mean you're neat and precise in management, but you need to understand the information flows that are coming to you and going out from you. Uh, you know, all know the Hans Christian Andersen fairy story about the emperor's new clothes. Essentially, the emperor thought he had this great new cloak because all his courtiers told him how glorious it was. And it wasn't until he was out on the street and the little boy asked, why are you naked, that he realized that the emperor had no clothes. Unfortunately, that's a tendency for all leaders to mistake, that people who are close to you seeking to advance tend to tell you how brilliant your clothes are. And it is very important for a leader to understand how to make sure that the information flows in ways that, uh, that they don't fall into that trap. And here is a case where, where you can contrast um, the two Bush presidencies again. And you'll never find two presidents who are more genetically related than, than these two. Um, they both dealt with some of the same strong individuals, people like uh, uh, Dick Cheney and Colin Powell and so forth. But Bush 41 organized a foreign policy process using Brent Scowcroft to make sure that there were constant flows of different information that he was receiving. 43 did not take the same efforts, did not make as good a job of managing that process, and I think wound up less well served by that lack of organizational skill. Uh, it's not unique uh, in that sense. If you look at uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who's often criticized as a president who didn't do much, historians later found that Eisenhower, though he gave the external impression of being relaxed and not in control, uh, one of the best books about Eisenhower's presidency afterwards was called The Hidden Hand Presidency. Behind the scenes, Eisenhower knew exactly what was going on and how the information was flow. So organizational skill, one of the key hard power skills. The other one is what I call Machiavellian political skills. And that's the ability to size up the weaknesses and strengths, the likes and dislikes of others, to put them together into a minimum winning coalition. And that often involves a degree of politics of fear, a degree of bullying. And Lyndon Johnson would be a good example. Anybody who reads Robert Cairo's book, The Master of the Senate, gets a wonderful portrait of a leader who used these hard power bullying skills to get a lot done. The question, though, is what kind of bully do you want to be? Uh, sometimes bullying is counterproductive. Sometimes it's productive. 
My friend and colleague at Stanford, Rod Kramer, has called the difference between just bullies and others. He says they're great intimidators. And a great intimidator is a bully with a vision. And the best example, <laughs> the best example of that would be Hyman Rickover, the father of the nuclear navy. Uh, you might think Admiral Rickover. He must have been a handsome, tall, swashbuckling admiral. No, he was a little guy near the bottom of his class in Annapolis, but extraordinarily skillful at Machiavellian bullying. What he did, though, was combine his bullying with a vision of an absolutely perfect nuclear navy, accident-free, and he produced it. And he was able to accomplish this by getting resources from the Congress and by setting standards in a rigorous way for people who worked for him so there were no accidents. The result was a accident-free nuclear navy which young officers wanted to join, not because they wanted to be bullied by Rickover, but because they said, this guy is getting things done with a vision. So three, hard three soft power skills, two hard power skills, but the key is the one I mentioned to you, contextual intelligence, the sixth skill, which is the ability to put them together into smart strategies. And this is an intuitive diagnostic skill that allows you to align your tactics with your objectives. One way to think of it, it's a little bit like surfing. If you're surfing and you get on the board before the wave is there, you're going to fall off. If you get on the board too late, you're going to miss your timing and miss the wave. Or Otto von Bismarck, the great German chancellor, had a more poetic way of putting it. He said, the leader has to have a sense of timing, which is like listening for God's footsteps in history and seizing his garment as he sweeps by. Uh, much more poetic than surfing, but, uh, but it's a, it, that knowledge of how to use which skills in which circumstances is crucially important. Let me use an example from corporate life. Um, if you take the testimony of Jeff Immelt, the CEO of GE, Immelt has said, there are times, about a dozen times a year, when after we've argued about a policy, I have to say, look, folks, I'm deciding. This is it. A dozen times a year. He said, if I did that 18 times a year, I'd lose my best people. If I did it three times a year, the company would fall apart. That ability to know the difference between 12, 18, and 3 is contextual intelligence. And we can train people to have contextual intelligence, essentially to broaden their bandwidth and to tune it so that they know which responses make sense in which situations. If a leader is dealing with a crisis, he or she has to understand what's a normal crisis and what's an extraordinary crisis. A normal crisis is a category three hurricane hitting Florida. Devastating, expensive, difficult, but it happens enough that we have standard operating procedures that we know how to handle it and we have something, a standard operating procedure to plug in. You don't want all people sitting around saying, what do we do? We know how to deal with it. An extraordinary crisis is a Category 4 hurricane hitting New Orleans when the levees are weak. And there, rather than standard operating procedure that you just plug in, you actually have to think what's different about this and how do we need to adapt and change our leadership to it. And that, of course, was one of the problems we faced when we tried to deal with uh, Katrina. 
So in that sense, we need to rethink our approaches to leadership. Not to ask, do we need soft power or do we need hard power? But how can we train people so that they can do both? So they combine them into soft strategies. I think the best way to express this is something the Army has used. The Army has talked about a little trilogy, which they call Be, Know, Do. Be means to understand yourself, which can come from introspection, or it can come from 360 evaluations and so forth, to understand what are your emotional strengths and weaknesses, how can you develop that emotional intelligence. Know means to look at previous experiences, to do case studies in business school about leaders who succeeded or failed, to study history and understand what's worked or what's not worked in different contexts. And the third do is the ability to learn from experience, to go out and do things, and then as the Army always puts it, after something happens, you do an after action review. If you've done well, you ask, could we have done it better? And if you haven't done well, you say, what was it that we didn't do we could do to make it better next time? I think these are skills that can be taught. And I think it's important that our leaders begin to be trained to talk about this larger question of context, how to combine soft and hard power if we're going to be a smart power. And that's true not only in terms of leadership at the level of the local group, or the level of the state or the nation, but also for America internationally. We have to learn more about other cultures. We have to learn more about the distribution of power. We have to learn more about what's time urgent and what's not, so that we can take our hard and soft power skills and combine them into a smart strategy. But to do that, we've got to be able to talk about it. We've got to be able to get away from this problem that my congresswoman friend said, which is, sorry, it's not good on the political hustings. And until we get a dialogue in this country in which you're actually openly talking about the powers to lead, hard, soft, and smart, we're not going to make those adjustments that we need to be effective either at home or abroad. So if there's any value to writing books, and sometimes professors wonder whether, whether it makes a difference or not, um, the value of this one, I think, is to try to get us as a nation to think more about this larger context of where we are in the world and how we can most effectively lead it. So thank you very much, and I'll look forward to your questions. I have the uh, honor of uh, chairing the discussion. I'm an old colleague of Joe Nye's from back in Boston and Washington at times. Uh, I'm uh, the director of studies at the Tower Center, C.M. Brown. But let's just open it up for this discussion now. Anyone who would like to? Kathy Cooper, yes. Thank you. Uh, my question relates to uh, whether you, when you look at the U.S. and look at the way the U.S. chooses political leaders and how they do or do not meet some of the uh, good, some of the things that you're talking about here. How, do, how does the U.S. Uh, fare versus other countries, European countries, Australia and such? Do they do a better job of combining these, the hard, soft, and smart power in, their, in choosing their leaders? Uh, it's an interesting question because if you think about the American uh, 
style of choosing our presidents. It's very different from what happens in Parliament in Britain. If you're going to rise to the top in the parla parliamentary system, you will have put in 10, 20 years of paying your dues. Everybody will see you under different situations. So a Margaret Thatcher doesn't come out of somewhere. She's been well vetted before she becomes the leader. And she proved to be a very effective British leader. Uh, one of the things that's odd is that we will elect a governor from a state who uh, often may not have a lot of experience and then hope that they can manage the transition to Washington. This year is doubly interesting, though, because for the first time in about four decades, we have three choices, all of whom are senators, which means that our next leader is going to be a senator. The good news about that is that we've seen some of them around for longer, such as Senator McCain. Uh, the bad news is that there's a big difference between managing a Senate staff of 75 or 100 people and managing a huge federal executive branch. So we are then trying to think about what do we know about their experience. McCain in the military, but there he was a flyer, not a commander of a division. Um, Clinton in the White House, but there she was near power, but not making decisions. Obama, who lived overseas and has a much better sense of other cultures than any president we've had in a long time, but who hasn't had executive experience. So it, the American way of choosing leaders is different, um, for better and for worse. It means we have more chance of refreshing ourselves with new surprises. But sometimes the surprises, <laughs> some surprises are good and some are bad. <laughs> Just, just taking off on that, Joe, uh, the Senate now might be more analogous to the way the international system is uh, evolving. Uh, less hierarchy, having to persuade people into a coalition. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I think it is interesting that, uh, that we are looking at senators uh, because it has the conventional wisdom is go for a governor who has executive experience. It may be that uh, having three senators, all, of three, all three of whom I think are are very good candidates. Somebody said earlier about the final four. Well, in this case, the final three are pretty impressive. And the fact that we have three senators who have that legislative experience may actually make them uh, successful. But there's still a problem of managing a large executive branch. And we're, so there's still a, a bit of a hunch that we have to play on when we make choices. Yes. Yes, sir. You know, I really find it fascinating the way that you categorize these things. And I frankly think it's a heck of a lot better than the quote way that, that management books have tended to go from one extreme to another and where collegial became an okay term for management which really doesn't mean a heck of a lot in my opinion. But now that you've got the uh, soft power and the hard power, I think it's a great way to explain it. Well, thanks Mitch. I think that, uh, that the great danger is I, as I look through the management uh, literature as I was preparing whether to to write this book, there is a, a tendency to uh, look for, for uh, terms that summarize something like the management habits of Attila the Hun, which is all hard power, <laughs> or who moved my cheese or something. There's not much that I found that was short, readable, and analytic. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I couldn't find a book to teach, which I felt was giving people an analytical approach, which the soft, hard power distinction does and which was also readable. There were a lot of long academic treatises which were unreadable. So I think this is aimed to try to find that middle ground. 
you, 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 you had a comparison of I mean, hierarchy and then the network, which in the hierarchy I think is the pyramid type of power, the king on top, and a whole bunch of people on the bottom. Now when you export that comp concept to an international scene, especially in a developing country where some communities or traditions expect their leaders to be hard and then expect that information to, to go down the, the, the chain. How does, how does America deal with the situation? For instance, I mean, as you go across the world with more information and people be more resistant to America's presence in the world, how, which of these powers do you use? Do you use them in a combination? Do you, I mean, how does the leader deal with the people that are resisting them and not lose their face to those who people, to, to the people that are expecting him to do something? Well, it's a good point, and I don't want my position to be interpreted as thinking that hard power doesn't matter. It matters very much. For example, in the 1990s, we tried to persuade diplomatically the Taliban government of Afghanistan to stop giving uh, bases to al-Qaeda. Uh, obviously, that soft power approach failed, and I think it was entirely appropriate that we used hard power to remove the Taliban uh, government. Uh, but there's a difference between that and, let's say, the invasion of Iraq, where I think we didn't spend enough time on legitimacy. You look at Bush 41 is, is, is in the Desert Storm. He developed this extraordinary broad coalition to invade uh, Kuwait and drive Iraqi troops out. Why did he want the Syrians, the French, the Egyptians in his coalition? Were they going to help him militarily? No, some people would say just the opposite. They actually subtracted more military than they did. What they brought was legitimacy. When we went into Iraq in 2003, we didn't pay enough attention to that legitimacy point. That, combined with things like Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo, meant that it was a, that use of hard power was a huge consumer of our soft power. And I think it's interesting that the military picked up on this even more quickly than the civilians. Um, Bob Gates did say in November, um, as Secretary of Defense, we can't solve this by military means alone. Somebody like General Corelli or General Petraeus knew that already. So I think the, the, this question of how do you combine hard and soft power in different types of contexts, you can't shy, shy away from hard power, but you've got to ask, if I use it this way, is it going to hurt me or help me? For example, Donald Rumsfeld, who is famous for saying he doesn't understand soft power, um, is, when NATO, after 9-11, when NATO invoked Article 5, saying they would come to the defense of the United States, he wanted nothing to do with that, because his argument is this will reduce our military efficiency. He was thinking back to the Kosovo War, where others got a choice to say which targets were bombed. So because of a concern about military efficiency on hard power, he sacrificed that enormous legitimacy that came from having a broad alliance or coalition uh, uniting with us. And that was a failure to develop a smart strategy which blended soft and hard power. There may be situations in which neither works. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, could you comment on uh, that with respect to Iraq today? Well, on Iraq today, uh, what we're seeing is a change in strategy, uh, which uh, the new counterinsurgency strategy has, which is placing an emphasis on, uh, on molding the two. The key question is whether it's too late. I mean, the, the, we've seen an improvement through the surge, 
But the key question is, have we done what we needed to get the Iraqi factions to politically bargain with each other? If we can't, then the surges or the future surges are not going to work. So the question is, what is the effect of this on getting the Sunni and Shia to make the compromises that are necessary? And that's the indicator to look for. But there are also other places where, where uh, soft power will work. North Korea. Uh, you can't expect that you're going to attract Kim, Il, uh, Kim Jong-il away from his nuclear weapons. Uh, that will probably be decided more by the hard power of economic sanctions. Uh, and the key fat player there will be China, not the, not the US. Yes. Yes, please. how that's affecting all of what you're talking about? Well, in the, uh, there are differences among constitutional lawyers about what is an inherent power of the commander-in-chief. And uh, it's been argued not just in this administration, but other administrations. But I think this administration has taken it further than we've seen in the past. And I think that probably reflects the sense of a panic uh, that we as a people felt after 9-11. Uh, but if you read the kinds of, of legal documents that were produced by John Yu, which have been in the front page of the papers in the last couple of days, they are generally seen by most constitutional lawyers having swung this pendulum way out beyond where it otherwise had been. And if that meant that you had more leeway for people lower down the hierarchy to torture, uh, that then hoard our soft power. I mean, that view, the army has a wonderful expression, which is kiss, keep it simple, stupid. And the point of, of outlawing torture is that it's one thing to say at the top, I'll make these careful nuances. Once you get down a large bureaucratic hierarchy and chain of command, unless you've made it quite clear what the instructions are, uh, you're gonna get abuse. And that's what we got. And it's become very expensive to our soft power. Yes. On how to improve our outreach to the world, how to improve our soft diplomacy or public diplomacy, what would you recommend? Well, I think there, you're a better expert on this than I, Rina, so I, I would defer to you on it. But I think what I would, um, I would say is, first of all, uh, we've got to put a lot more effort into it. I mean, it's really quite bizarre that Britain and France, which are one-fifth our size, spend as much as we do on cultural exchanges, broadcasting, all the rest of things that go into public diplomacy. Um, or another way of thinking about it uh, is that we spend um, a little over a billion, billion and a half on various dimensions of public diplomacy and we spend half a trillion on the defense budget. Now, I'm not against the defense budget as a former Assistant Secretary of Defense, but isn't there something odd that, uh, that the ratio is about 400 or 500 to one? I mean, there, there's something odd about that. But in, in the content of it, I also uh, think that uh, while broadcasting is important and it matters, um, broadcasting tends to be one way. We're not listening. When you have exchange programs, it's two ways, and we learn, and we listen. 
I think some of the some of the uh, exchange programs that you oversaw and the cultural programs actually give you better value for the dollar. And uh, so in this Smart Power Commission that Richard Arbridge and I co-chaired, we recommended doubling something like the Fulbright program. And, um, or another example uh, would be American civil society. It's not just the government that produces our soft power attraction, it's, it's the nature of our society, uh, our foundations, our universities, and uh, our cultural media, and so forth. Uh, so I'd like to see another recommendation in the Smart Power Commission report that, of the Center for Strategic and International Studies was uh, that we create a foundation for international understanding, which would help, which would allow the government to finance more contacts of American uh, private groups with people overseas, but with a heat shield which would protect it from government control. And I think we need to be more imaginative in that way um, to go beyond where we are now. We have time for one more question. Yes. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I think it's probably there is, but I think it's a very long-term proposition. Um, I think that uh, you can't export democracy at the barrel of a gun, and it takes quite some time to develop a civil society and habits of compromise which underlie a true democracy. Um, and I think we are finding that out the hard way. So I think we should be in favor of promoting democracy in our foreign policy but we should be much more subtle about the way we do it. We should be developing um, institutions in other societies, helping them open up to outside influences, uh, protecting or, or helping protect individuals who stand for free speech or lawyers who stand for independent judiciary. Um, there are lots of things you can do which influence other countries in their movement toward democracy but they're not as dramatic as saying I'll invade the country and have an election and have a democracy, which we've learned the hard way, I think, is not going to be the right way to do it. So, yes, democracy is in our genes, so to speak, as a national, uh, a, uh, a country that has certain ideals that uh, are good, but if we overdo how we approach it, we can be counterproductive. So democracy promotion, yes. Um, in a different way. Unfortunately, neither Jim Fisk nor Jim Hollifield has the soft power to delay the plane that Joe has to catch. <clears throat> well, we are very indebted to uh, having you speak with us today. Uh, your presentation reinforced something that I learned early in my career, and that is that if you want a clear-headed and fresh understanding of deep problems that we ought to be thinking about, 
read and listen to Joe Nye. Thank you very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfw.org.